Today's guest is my friend, Neil Goldsmith. He's a psychotherapist based in the New York area and the author of Psychedelic Healing, The Promise for Entheogens, for Psychotherapy and Spiritual Development. And uh, this is one of a few podcast conversations I had with Neil. Uh, always enlightening. He's a brilliant guy. Um, and we, we, co- we cover a lot of different things. I, I mean, psychedelics and healing being one of them, uh, but also mindfulness in a very practical way. Um, we kind of go find a lot of tangents because Neil has a lot of fun things to talk about. So I don't want to, to, to summarize this episode in, in a specific bullet points. Um, but he's a brilliant guy. We'll definitely have him on the podcast again in the near future. I hope you enjoy this. This is episode negative 10, Neil Goldsmith, psychedelic healing. Episode negative 10. Messed up the intonation on that one. It's okay. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, Perpetual Orgasm, Infinite Play. Please subscribe on iTunes and enjoy the show. Yeah, so my original interest in speaking with you, initially at least, was the concept of microdosing. I've been reading about it. Um, LSD is a performance enhancer, uh, which is now, like I guess, the way it's being phrased. Like uh, Rolling Stone had that article about them, I think, last month. Um, do you have any experience with it? Um, well, first of all, the concept of performance enhancing is interesting because mm-hmm. it's not a performance enhancer the way like a stimulant would be. Yeah. If it's a performance enhancer, it's by getting you down to your ground, mm-hmm. by making you sort of see more clearly or be realer, yeah. or be more in touch with the true reality so that you avoid. It's kind of like, you know, in, 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 in spiritual development and psychedelics, they have certain terms that are used all over, you know, over and over again, like, um, uh, sorry, are you going to be um, putting the audio up? Just the yeah. uh, audio, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so you'll edit out the sounds and butts. Oh, yeah. Like that one. Yeah, <laughs> and this, yeah. Yeah, you're good. Okay, good. So, um, so the idea of, um, of these, these phrases like enlightenment, for example, mm-hmm. and light, light, what happens when you're in a dark room and you turn on the light? You see more clearly. Yeah. You don't stub your toe on the coffee table as you're walking through the room. Yeah. You walk around the coffee table. You have wisdom. Right. It's really so simple. It's really not that complicated. Same thing with awakening. It's another term that you use. Well, when you're asleep, your eyes are closed. You're not seeing the room around you. You're dreaming too. You're in a fancy mm-hmm. state. You wake up. You, you awaken. You open your eyes. Yeah. And you see clearly. It's just seeing what's there. What's always there. Because you've opened your eyes and now you can see. So second dose is kind of like that. So if um, if they're performance enhancers, it's because you see more clearly. So there's the assumption that your natural state is maybe more creative than what we normally walk around in. More um, uh, more full, more in touch, mm-hmm. more grounded, more more whole in terms of our experience of it. Yeah. And therefore, we're more effective. It's like the more data you have, the more effectively you can. Run an obstacle course. Yeah, it's it's um it's a big performance enhancers as a subject is a big thing in sports, obviously, because um it gives people an edge. But then there's always the argument so, on the job. Yeah, performance enhancers as well. The, the creative types in Silicon Valley, you know, are famous for using small doses of psychedelics, yeah. or even larger doses for that matter, as performance enhancers, not just in athletics but also in cognitive enhancers. Yeah. Well, the the argument. And then there's the word no hitter. Oh, yeah, Doc Ellis. So the first time I ever did acid, um, you know, it was only a few years ago, maybe four years ago, and I'm really terrible at basketball. I I can barely dribble. I I always choke on three-pointers, but I was so good that day. Like, I was running the courts. Everyone was amazed. Yeah, why? 
was it your performance was enhanced in an athletic sort of stimulant type of way? No. Yeah. You were you were seeing more clearly, right? Yeah, and I I didn't have any thoughts to psych me out. I just you know, oh, ball goes in the bucket. You know, it was really simple. Yeah. So. To jump around, I guess we're going off of microdosing for now. Well, actually, no, no, do, you have yeah. another, do you have another thought? I do. Oh, I, yeah. want, I want to share something with you about microdosing. Mm-hmm. I've definitely microdosed, and I found it very interesting because mm-hmm. <laughs> people have all different definitions. Obviously, there's no legal definition of microdosing. Mm-hmm. But for me, microdosing should be that the, the most you can take without feeling at all like you're tripping. Mm-hmm. So if you're noticing the psychedelic in you, you take a microdose. Let's say you take 50 micro, micrograms, um, and that after that, you know, two hours later, you start feeling a little funky. You start feeling a little trippy. Very slight, very slight little visual distortion. That's too much. Hmm. That's not microdosing. Microdosing is, by definition, to me, that amount that you can't feel. It's the sub-threshold. That's the limit. So the reason why I say that is because the effect of microdosing to me, that I think I've thought about this, is um, uh, it's like when you have a good trip on Saturday mm-hmm. and Sunday you're writing furiously in your diary yeah. and everything's beautiful. And Monday you're still a little foggy. By Tuesday or Wednesday, you are not feeling tripped out in any way at all. It's totally out of your system. Mm-hmm. Right? But if you had a really good trip those three or four days earlier, you're going to be in an afterglow state of of happiness and peace and relaxation. Maybe it's not ultimate peace, you know, right. like enlightenment, guru type peace, but you're going to feel really good. You're going to have an afterglow from the effect. You're not going to be psychedelic at all, mm-hmm. but you're going to be psychedelic in the sense of you know it changed your attitude on, on things, but not not in terms of a sensual, sensory, cognitive experience of tripping. Right, that you, you, you're not feeling at all. So microdosing to me. When you take stuff, threshold doses twice a week because you still have tolerance. Right. So you don't want to take it every day. So twice a week, sub-threshold sub doses, not noticeable. After a while, you begin to feel the feeling that you have on Tuesday or Wednesday after a good Saturday night trip, mm-hmm. a really good, strong, happy, solid experience. Three or four days later, that feeling of relaxed peace, that's what microdosing gets you mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis. So if you trip, if you feel trippy, if you feel psychedelic, if you see colors, if you see any distortion, then you're you're it's needless really because uh, microdosing is experiencing the benefits of psychedelics without actually tripping, without yeah. actually going through the turmoil and the stress of having the trip. Mm-hmm. And that's the extraordinary thing about microdosing is that it has its effect without you having to experience the psychedelic state. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty and the magic of of, of microdosing. So for me, it's sub-threshold. That means for LSD, the threshold is somewhere 25 to 40 micrograms. So something like 15 micrograms would be considered microdosing. If you're taking a 40 microgram or 50 microgram dose and having a mild, very, very mild experience, that's not a microdosing. Mm -hmm. So I defined it as sub-threshold, and so is Jim Fadiman for that matter. Right. And... um, uh, uh, you know, Jim has an informal database of people who reported to him what their experiences have been like. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's actually published that in any kind of collated way. I've seen him quoted a lot on the internet. Quoted, yeah. yeah. So you could, if you don't know Jim, I'll introduce you. He's a really nice Oh, guy. that'd be awesome. Oh, yeah. Is he in New York? No, he's in California. Okay. In California. Gotcha. Just send me an email and I'll, I'll cool. forward it to you. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Introduce you guys. 
Um, so he has his most anecdotal data on the topic. Yeah. But personally, I just find that um, the people who are taking low-dose trips mm-hmm. and calling it microdosing are really missing the point. Yeah. You don't need to trip. That's the whole point about microdosing. You don't need to trip. Mm-hmm. It's a chemical like like serotonin reaction. It's like Prozac. Yeah. It's not meant to be psychedelic. You don't so, need the psychedelic experience of awe or, or you know, being shocked. That's not what this is about. So I know uh, with your view on psychedelics as like a healing um, modality or something that could help you way beyond the trip, uh, you know, maybe the rest of your life after the trip. Can microdosing have that effect? Because I know a lot of people um, may start looking at it like Adderall or adrenaline or, some, or something that just will spike them for a week or a few days Two months later, if they've been microdosing for a while, would that have a lasting, sustainable effect, do you think? Well, first of all, if somebody just does it, you know, for a spike because they've got some meeting coming up or something mm-hmm. following, that's different. That's not really exactly what microdosing is about, although I imagine that, you know, you, you might get some performance enhancement, mm-hmm. you know, from a low-dose psychedelic trip where you're microdosing uh, around a specific moment in time. Um, a week or something where you mm-hmm. have to do, I guess. I mean, there's no data, I don't know, but I would guess that would probably have some performance enhancing effect. But um, uh, if you did it on a consistent basis, like every other, you know, twice a week for four months, let's just say, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, but I would imagine, yes, like, mm-hmm. let me ask you this question instead. Let's say that you had Prozac. Mm-hmm. which for some people works well. And let's say you have a person where it really worked well, and the person took it for four months, and they had a good fact. They were happy or, you know, they were really feeling calm and happy. Now, at four months' time, they stopped taking the drug. Mm-hmm. Would that experience of having been happy or happier, would that have changed them in a permanent way? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. Or maybe they're, I mean, I would imagine some people have adverse effects afterwards where they've gotten so used to Prozac. I mean, I don't know. I'm looking, I'm no, comparing to other drugs, but. No, it's true. Yeah. Uh, getting off of uh, Prozac is um, difficult. So yeah. You have negative effects that come off of it. So I'm not sure about um, if, if you have that experience with LSD. I mean, LSD is different, you know, from Prozac's style drug. But, you know, gee whiz, you know, if, if it floods this synapses with serotonin and does that on a regular basis, mm-hmm. and then you stop it, you may have some sort of withdrawal. I don't, you know, this, the thing, you know, let me make a, a, a push a bit for um, research. There's so many fascinating questions. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the most powerful psychiatric medicines ever developed by humans. Yeah. The most powerful s- spiritual sacrament yeah. ever used by humans. Uh, even though they've been denatured and, right. and they're, you know, uh, now it's just a wafer and, and wine, whereas it used to be, you know, a psychedelic mushroom and um, psychoactive uh, uh, wine. You know, when they do um, wine jar scrapings from dry, you know, uh, wine jugs from the biblical age when they discover mm-hmm. them, it's an anthropological, uh, archaeological uh, dig, and they do scrapings on the bottom to see what was in the wine, and they analyze it molecularly. They find that wine back then wasn't just fermented grapes, but it had frankincense and myrrh and mushrooms huh. and different psychoactive So when you drank wine, it, especially you know, in the Last Supper ceremonial kind of setting, you were um, having a micro trip, really, in a way. Um, you were tripping from those experiences. 
Yeah. So and combined with a ritual that that sinks you in a totally different reality. Yeah, and if you actually eat the flesh of God, you know, in the form of um, mushroom, yeah, then it's even more so. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense to have it be a mushroom rather than some cardboard piece of bread. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Well, I think what happens is that in the early days of, um, you know, uh, foraging communities where there was a much flatter hierarchical uh, basis, there was Mm -hmm. really no hierarchy, you know, very little, and everybody was uh, in touch with the plants themselves in direct experience, like um, a, you know, in Christian, they call charismatic experiences. So everyone had that. Yeah. And, um, you know, when um, agriculture started and um, there were, you know, resources accumulated and um, diet, by the way, nutrition went down when agriculture started, by the yeah. way, because the diet was less varied. And you yeah. see it in the skeletons of, of um, archaeological digs. Back, you know, 4,000 years ago, skeletons were, you know, a certain stature, six feet or five and a half feet. And then um, when agriculture happened, the skeletons went down yeah. for about uh, until the modern era, until the 20th century. They didn't catch up with pre-agricultural heights mm-hmm. until just recently. Anyway, so agriculture is not good for you that way, but it's really good for you financially because it enables surplus and, you know, you have to, but then you have to have guards to guard the surplus and yeah. you have to have hierarchy and you have to have kings and city states and all that stuff as that emerged. Right, and right. The idea of having a bunch of people taking mushrooms, um, or other visionary plants and having a direct experience of God. So in a way, leapfrogs the hierarchy of citizen, king, God. So you got to go through. You got to. It's mediated. Yeah. You know, the king is in control, and then this priest under the king who's mediating your spiritual experience even further. Yeah. So that I think that basically they said the king says, "Listen, you know, um, you know, the people, you know, shouldn't be taking all these uh, psychedelics. Makes them too uppity. You can take it and give them visions and you know, tell them where they lost their watch and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But you know, but uh, you know, but don't give it to the, the citizens anymore." Yeah. Okay, flash forward, you know, 500 years. You know, something that they said about, you know, you can take it, but really not such a great idea for you to take it either. So here's this wafer. It's, it's like mushroom. <laughs> you know, here's this wine, you know, mm-hmm. it's like what we used to drink, but. Yeah, because they all just decided, oh, this king idea is stupid. There goes the king. Just in the exactly agreement. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly right. It's like, you know, the, the, um, the warlord comes down on his horses. Um, to the uh, uh, tribal community and says to the shaman, you know, um, uh, I'll give you uh, gold and rubies and silk and stained glass, and all you need to do is tell your people to fight in my wars and pay my taxes. Mm-hmm. And if they complain, just tell them that there's a reward after they die. Yeah. And the shaman says, fuck you, I'm not going to do that. Are you crazy? I, I'm with mushrooms with my people. This is so the warlord says, oh, his head. Right. Flop, 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 flop. The head rolls down the hill. So now he goes to the assistant shaman, and he says, I'll give you gold and rubies and stained glass and silk, and all you have to do is tell your people to, uh, you know, fight my wars and pay my taxes. Mm-hmm. And if, there's, if they complain, tell them there's a reward after they die. And the assistant shaman looks at the head on the, on the floor and looks at the warlord and looks at the head on the floor <laughs> and the warlord and says, stained glass it is, man. Let's go with those rubies. Come on. So under that idea. So in other words, so religion becomes co-opted as an arm of the state yeah. to control people. Mm-hmm. It's no longer spiritual. In fact, it denudes and denatures the spiritual sacraments like the wafer, for example, yeah. progressively over time because psychedelics make you kind of see more clearly and make you uppity against, you know, um, uh, selfish control from power 
freaks from above. You see that clearly. You say, this is ego. This is bullshit. They're using my money for their benefit. I'm not going to take it anymore. You see more clearly. Yeah. That's the action of psychedelics. You know, people think the action of psychedelics is colorful colors or extreme emotional experiences or shit like that. That's not the action of psychedelics. Action of psychedelics is illumination. Mm-hmm. The colorful dist- visual distortions and the emotional ability, all of that stuff is the reaction to the action of psychedelics. If you don't want to see, then you'll get all freaked out emotionally and try to hide from it and stuff like right. that. That's not what psychedelics does. Psychedelics shows you the truth. If you're not ready to see it, then you'll freak out and, and avoid it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's a reaction to the action. The action is clean. So that's why the power elite, the power authorities, hierarchy, you know, took away psychedelics progressively over time for political reasons. So the church, with its big chapels and stained glass and cathedrals and all the impressive stuff, is just a smokescreen, literally, you know, with incense, a smokescreen to um, uh, 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 keep the people subjugated. And so as a result, it's, it's, and you'll notice it when you go to a religious institution in the modern world, there's no spirituality at all. Mm-hmm. There's all this mumbo jumbo and poetry and stuff like that. There's no direct experience. There's no psychoactive sacrament. There's no actual spiritual um, uh, um, uh, ritual. Uh, it's not. It's not spiritual at all. It's meant to make you awestruck mm-hmm. and compliant. So all of the religions, including Buddhism for that matter, are arms of the state and instruments of um, control. And spirituality is a direct experience. Then there's no hierarchy, no mediation, and um, you know it's uh, it, it leads one to a flatter political um, hierarchy, which is good for sustainability, mm-hmm. by the way, which is just what we need in the modern world today. Yeah. So you're basically saying that religion was created to pimp what spirituality was, like to, to yeah. extract it, to co-opt it, because that's where the people were, but that's for what people were following. Well, it's like what anybody would follow is yeah. a sacrament that makes you see God. And shit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like any any tribal peoples who had access to a psychoactive sacrament made use of it. Mm-hmm. The only ones that are noted is the Eskimos. Yeah. In their environment, didn't have psychoactive things. So every culture except Western civilization has integrated psychedelics into their um, uh, spiritual practices, into their cosmology. And we haven't done it. And it's basically since agriculture and since the political rise of city-states and stuff like that, and then capstoned by Descartes, yeah. the philosopher who said, well, you know, if you pay, you know, uh, your, 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 your love to God on Sunday, then on Monday you can charge interest to your neighbors. And the interesting part about that was right around the Industrial Revolution, when um, in the Middle Ages, when, when the Scientific Revolution and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution was beginning, Catholicism did not allow people to charge interest. Hmm. It was considered usurious, so it was proscribed. So Catholicism, when it first came out, allowed people to charge interest. So, so Protestantism was aligned with the uh, Protestant work ethic, with capitalism. Mm-hmm. And um, it, they, people swarmed, thronged to Protestantism because the merchant class needed to be able to um, charge interest. So the Jews didn't make all the money because the Jews weren't Catholics; they could charge interest. Right. But the Catholics, the, the majority of the Christian community in Europe, couldn't charge interest, and the merchant class was becoming Jewish basically. So when Protestantism came out, it allowed people to charge interest. They Catholicism essentially lost huge market share. People left Catholicism and went to Protestantism. Mm-hmm. And, began, and then, of course, Catholicism finally allowed you to charge interest to 
do, do you feel that this absence of spirituality is what allowed the Western world to get ahead from an industrial it standpoint? It's to get ahead. It's, so that's a great question. Pro progress and maturity and development is always a matter of short-term versus long-term. Uh -huh. And the, um, it's, it's kind of set up that way in a way, so you have to see past the short-term to the maturity of the long term. That's the stepwise development as we can show up on the next level. So, you no, know, I don't want to exercise because it's tiring, but I think about the future it'll be good for my body if I exercise, so I'll do it. Yeah. Long term perspective. No, I want candy right now because it feels good. Now you better not because it's bad for you long term. Right. So short term versus long term. So, um, this idea of, um, of um, the, um, the Cartesian um, split and uh, modernity and in industrialism and, and, and capitalism and all, yes, did indeed create what I'm looking at the window and seeing, mm -hmm. you know, cars and automobiles and planes and roof over our heads and electricity and central heating and all the things that help us live to be 90. Yeah. But it's been a short-term focus on immediate survival Darwinian survival, not a long-term focus on sustainability. So what happened is we got very good using our eyes, frontal lobes, and opposable thumbs and fingers complex. Those three things enable us to change the world and create everything you see around you. But it's, it's, although we live to 90, we're disintegrated um, from the nature. So the reason why people... Um, take a look at, you know, periodically in the tribal society, even sustainable foraging tribal societies want to take a look at the netherworld. Want to peek their head out temporarily and look at, you know, the substrate world, the quantum mechanical world. Do you know the name of this uh, painting? Yeah, Neil just showed me... Uh, um, it's a famous painting. A famous painting of a person peeking outside of the world. Yeah. It's like the veil, the curved veil of, 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 this, of the ceiling of, of, of our world. It, yeah. It, 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 he can stick his head through it. It's a medieval woodblock. Yeah, I'll uh, find the name of it. And it's I'll well it. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty famous. But um, the, the idea is that, you know, because we evolved our frontal lobes and our, our eyes and our opposable thumbs, and we were so good at mechanically extracting things like, mm -hmm. you know, coal becomes iron, becomes steel, or grapes become wine, becomes vodka, yeah. or, you know, opium becomes morphine, becomes heroin. You know, we're so good at extracting out the active ingredient, the powerful core thing, and um, taking it out of nature like in this extractive kind of way. And, and so then we use it to our advantage, you know, because it's more powerful, it's more concentrated. Um, that whole approach, you know, opposes us to nature rather than places us within it. And so although short-term it's really good because now you've got, you know, vodka and steel and heroin, and you can do, you know, good things with those um, powerful substances. On the other hand, because we haven't been dipping occasionally into the nether world mm -hmm. to see the fundamental, the more real substrate, the spiritual slash quantum mechanical world, they're the same, where distance, time, no longer matter. You know that, that experiment in, sub, in subatomic and quantum mechanics where they split a subatomic particle and they go off in opposite directions right. and they put a mirror at 45 degree angle in the path of one side and of course when it uh, hits it, it bends to 90 degrees and the other one, they don't put a mirror there, but simultaneously when the first particle bends 90 degrees, the second, the right. opposing particle also does, even though there's no mirror there because they're fundamentally entangled. And when I say fundamentally, I mean the word literally. 
you know, the fundamental underpinning of, of, of nature. It's like how the physical world precipitates out of the sub atomic quantum mechanical spiritual world yeah. Within, just like raindrops precipitate out of a vapor cloud yeah. it's a change of state from gas to liquid when conditions like pressure or temperature change the vapor coalesces into liquid and has a it's like a, a, a phase change like a stepwise change from gas to liquid and now it's a liquid it coalesces into drops and falls to the ground as precipitation so that the liquid precipitates out of the gas yeah. and likewise the physical world of newtonian physics precipitates out of the subatomic quantum mechanical spiritual world so if you want to really have your mechanical uh, fingers uh, frontal lobes eyes complex do your digging and extracting in a way that's not going to fuck everything up you want to occasionally go back down to the subatomic substrate world that's perfect, mm -hmm. that's God, that's love, to ground yourself in that more basic sense of healthy uh, um, perspective. So that then when you go to build something or chop down a tree, you'll pray to the tree and hope it's not too disturbed by you chopping it down. Yeah. Like the do. It's interesting you said the word ground because most people think of it the other way, like grounding back into three-dimensional physical reality. And like the netherworld is seen as like this, like spooky, you know, this is your imaginations and stuff. And it's also the yeah. is high. You get high, yeah. you go up high, and you get into the clouds, into the netherworld. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's foundational as, um, you know, the word essential. Mm -hmm. well, I, I like to mispronounce it, Esset, you know, essence show. You yeah. Know? You know, the real, to emphasize that it's essence. Yeah. That essential comes from the word essence. Yeah, with, with the entanglement, I like to imagine that if, if you imagine the fourth dimension outside of the three dimensions of time, you know, the physical reality, those two particles are actually right next to each other on this other dimension. Exactly. Yeah. Because distance, you know, lin linear distance, so that, that dimension doesn't exist. Yeah. So it's all one big godlike, you know, um, um, energy stew, mm -hmm. if you will, or, or where everything's connected to everything else. So to me, that's the more fundamental way the, the universe works. And so we say where everything's connected to everything else, for example. Yeah. The subatomic level or the spiritual substrate level, okay, fine, I can conceive of that. But how does that apply then to the real world, the precipitate world, mm -hmm. the physical objects and the Newtonian physics and stuff? Well, that's where religion com comes in and metaphorically says to you, everything's connected to everything else. Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, it's ridiculous. Uh, I can't be connected to somebody in Japan. And right. the priest smiles at you because they mean something a little different. Yeah. And it's a lesson that comes from periodically visiting the netherworld, which is what psychedelics enable you to do, which is why every society except Western civilization has had that in their cosmology and in their spiritual practices. And that's why we have a perfect storm of global warming, soil depletion, water depletion, uh, or, you know, um, um, et cetera, et cetera. That's the long-term consequence of this short-term, unbridled, ungrounded, right. un disconnected uh, material uh, tools that we have with our brain and our fingers and our eyes. So, are you so that's why we need to, again, that's when psychedelics have never been reintroduced to Western civilization, or now being reintroduced. It's really, in a way, the, the antidote to global warming, things like that, this reintroduction of that which we uh, killed off when we shut down the Eleusian Mysteries mm -hmm. in like the year 200 or something. So if we uh, 
this absence of psychedelics or returning to this kind of like empathy with nature. Like you wouldn't want to destroy the trees because it would feel bad to you and you already enjoy the tree as it is. Who needs a house or whatever? So you're the saying. tree is you too. Yeah. You know, it's a broader sense of identity mm-hmm. where if you've seen, you know, in a psychedelic state, if you've seen that all is one and you've seen the face of God and you realize that, you know, everyone is connected to you and you feel love, then, you know, it's, it's sort of an, um, uh, uh, they used to say in the 60s, expand your consciousness, expand your consciousness. And that term is literally true, an expansion of consciousness to um, include, like right now, you and I are talking, and my consciousness in some senses includes you. In some very real senses, my consciousness always includes my son. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my sense of identity of who I am yeah. is being expanded. And, you know, maturity is essentially the successive loss of egocentrism. So when you're a baby, it's all about me, 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 or me and mommy, and then later it's me and my buddies, and then maybe it's me and my school, or me and my country, I'll go fight a war, right. or maybe me and my planet, I have an ecological sense, or maybe me and the whole universe, I'm connected to, to God and, and the whole, I have a sense of wholeness. So this expansion of consciousness, of identity, really, mm-hmm. you know, in a very real sense, my family, I, I, I throw the umbrella of myself over to extend over my son. Yeah, that's an interesting take when you think about like Buddhist equanimity. Like if you really felt connected to every single person and thing, you you, you know every every acquaintance would be your best friend, and you kind of not have any preferences or attachments at that point. Mm. You know, I think that's maybe too mechanistic uh, an interpretation mm-hmm. of how it would feel to feel love for one's brothers yeah. and sisters. Because brothers and sisters, I just said, for example, yeah. just because you felt love for them doesn't mean you would think, oh, you wouldn't discern their, their gender. So you would still see the details of life and certain people you might want to avoid because yeah. they were less mature, let's just say, or more stressful or distracting or something like that. So you still, I think, make discerning differences because we're still in the physical world. Mm-hmm. We're not exclusively in the um, ego death, uh, white light, uh, samadhi, um, you know, um, not a dissociated, non-physical uh, world. And you can't live uh, a life, but you can go visit it and get grand, regrounded and then uh, live your life more wisely. Um, but I think um, while you would love everybody, you'd still be in a body, right? Yeah. You're still an animal. So although mentally or spiritually or in terms of consciousness, you would have love for all creatures, you'd still, you know, have a body and some creature or some human, immature human comes along and, and cuts you, let's just say, you know, you're going to withdraw your honor, you know, instinctively almost. So I don't think, you know, the, the physical yeah. world still exists, even though it's grounded in a broader, you know, conceptual framework. Well, there is like this virtual ideal of not even caring about your body, but it's fun having an ego and a body at times and an identity. I believe, see, I don't, I, I'm not um, of that school mm-hmm. that believes in transcendence of the physical and the body and that, you, you know, if you were cut, you would just smile and, you know, ignore it or not care. I absolutely think that's wrong. I think over the centuries that will be disproven. Yeah. Because I think that we're animals and there's got to be a, this duality between the animal natural world and the spiritual, ethereal, you know, bodiless world, mm-hmm. that duality has got to be a transcendent. That when you see duality in, in my practice and in my life, dualities are, are godsend in a way, quote unquote, because um, they indicate that transcendence required. It's like a yellow light flashing. Transcendence required, right. transcendence required. Duality is, is a clear signal that neither side will win. The Jews or the Arabs, neither will win. 
they'll transcend it and become somatic or in some way transcend the duality. And that's the only way peace will come. It's not either or. Same thing with couples when they come in for couples therapy. You know, it's, you know, the, the, each couple member says, do you know, Doc, you know, like, I, I'm so glad we're here because she's got real problems, you know, like 90% of her problems are her fault. Now, yeah, I, I got some problems too, but it's like rounding error. If you only fix her up, then, you know, um, my stuff would just be, you know, rounding error. And she says, you know, that's interesting because I feel the exact same way. Right. Duality, it's really cool. So um, this duality between um, spirit and, and, and the physical world has also got to go. And um, I think that this, um, like, that's why I said Buddhism, like all religions, including Buddhism, are arms of the state. Because the whole, um, to me, the monastic approach to Buddhist um, cultural life and spiritual life is, is way inappropriate. It's unnatural. Um, it, it, and same thing with Catholicism you know, uh, uh, being celibate stuff. It's ridiculous. Um, we're animals. We should uh, cherish and, and uh, extol that and enjoy it as, as well as become as spiritually mature. So I would say enlightened or at least these spiritual woo-woo terms. Right. Because it's so natural. It's as natural as, as peeing or as breathing. It's a better example. You know, um, spiritual development is just... Maturation is the normal end of adult human development. Anybody I've ever met who I've considered, you know, enlightened, who's been talked about in that way, has been very regular. They laugh, they eat, you know, um, they're, they're in a body. Yeah. So spirituality is always embodied. And, you know, and, and, um, it's like, you know, the body is, is made of subatomic particles that are just patterned energy. Mm -hmm. Probabilistic space. Our physical bodies we so, you know, rely upon as being concrete are, are not. They're based on just patterns of, of, of probabilistic energy. And that's not physical or that's not concrete. And spirituality, which is supposed to be so woo-woo and so ethereal and, you know, unconnected to the physical world, actually only takes place in a physical body. Yeah. In an animal. So, you know, if, if, the, if, if spirituality is embodied, and the body is kind of energy oriented, then isn't that just two ways of seeing the same thing? Mm -hmm. Two dualistic perspectives on something where you need to have a transcendent perspective that accommodates both of those. Yes, we are subatomic particles, and yes, we are um, animals, and you know, and this then it becomes sort of one phenomenon. And that's what I think about duality, and that's what I think about this, this silly duality between. See, this idea about leaving your body, how could you ever do that? And why would you ever want to? Let's right. say esoteric practices where you can do breathing and focus your mind in certain ways. There are in Buddhism many, you know, mind control practices that you can do. Just like you could control your facial expressions. If you, there's certain people who, for entertainment purposes, can wiggle their ears or, right. or move their yeah, facial muscles in certain ways. And you, you can learn to do that if you pay, if you look in the mirror. And you practice really hard. Eventually, you'll get control over your ears. I can't wiggle my ears, but I know that if I spend a year or two or three, you know, looking in the mirror frequently, I could gain the control of those muscles. Well, it's the same thing with introspection and Buddhist practice. You know, you, there's certain mental chemicals and stuff that you can control through breathing, and, and you control your heart rate through breathing and different blood pressure and stuff like that. Same thing introspectively. So you can make great. Uh, developments or great progress or great, you know, you can do very unusual esoteric things with your brain and your mind if you want to. So what? Mm -hmm. So what? So spend 20 years learning how to wiggle your ears, metaphorically speaking, in terms of brain function. And so what does that get you? 
you get to maybe a certain sense of bliss or happiness or spiritual, you know, elevation. That's really super important. But do you have a family? Do you have a community? Right. Um, have you enjoyed eating and fucking and everything else? So for me, as a theorist of, you know, mankind and humanity, I don't think that the Buddhist monastic, you know, ethereal kind of aesthetic, uh, not aesthetic, but aesthetic approach to um, spirituality is appropriate. I think it's an evidence of our immaturity as a species that we grasp on something supernatural and above us and the state of mind that doesn't entail our bodies, that transcends our bodies. To me, that's unhealthy. And yeah. I think, you know, a healthy, embodied, grounded, lusty spirituality where you're happy and, and mature spiritually is what the goal of life is. Um, spending, you know, 30 years doing certain techniques to be able to then put your mind in a certain state of mind sounds antisocial to me. Yeah. And, and unhealthy. Makes me think of the Shaolin temples where, like, they have guys who can, like, balance on one finger and stuff. It's like, oh, that's cool. But then, but then what? You're on, like, some Nat Geo special and that's it. And so let's say it's an even spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And that is a certain meditative technique that enables you to get deep inside yourself. You know, I don't know. I mean, that's not really the purpose of life. Uh, it, just because we have a brain and a mind and we've now noticed it, we've become self-conscious, self-aware about our mental cognitive functioning doesn't mean we need to, you know, uh, take it over. It's, it's just like the extractive, you know, um, uh, frontal lobe fingers and eye complex where we manipulate nature. So now we're manipulating our brain function mm -hmm. and controlling it. We're trying to control nature. No, don't control nature. Be nature. Mm -hmm. Be who you are. Breathe. The, the best, see, I said Buddhist, you know, a monastic tradition is an arm of the state. Buddhist practice, Buddhist philosophy isn't. That's, I, lo I love Buddhism and philosophically, but the way it's played out um, culturally in Tibet, for example, mm -hmm. in the monastic cultures, is to me a crying shame. So, um, you know, uh, I don't know how we got exactly yeah. on that topic, but <laughs> it's important. I, you know, when I see somebody walking toward me, especially a Westerner, in white robes, I run the other direction immediately because, you know, it's to me a signal of immaturity. Yeah, yeah. Trying to make new rules. For their, You're trying yeah. to adopt rules from a, a culture that you weren't even raised in. That's silly enough as it is. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. There's the phrase "holier than thou." You know, anytime there's a religious hierarchy, as opposed to a religious philosophy, but especially if you're living together, like in a monastic setting yeah. or a cult setting of any sort, where there's a, a leader and followers. Leaders and followers, that's by right. definition egotistical and, and hierarchical. And um, you can't be the leader. You can't be the guru and not have your ego. Yeah, every cult is a cult of personality, for sure. Which actually brings me to my interest in microdosing, because you know about my uh, monastic background with one taste and the oral own world and stuff. And uh, looking back, I'm writing about this now, and I'm thinking about it a lot, obviously. Looking back, I was so drawn to it because it felt like I was on a light dose of LSD a lot. Like, my sex life was a lot better. Time had slowed down. My normal, trivial worries about life didn't seem like a big deal. And I was with all these fun people and, and whatever, there's women and all that too. But I had a certain uh, unifying experience, was, which was enjoyable and perhaps was dopamine, whatever the, whatever the reasoning was. Well, there's also this the cultural aspect yeah. where you belong, where you belong. Oh, yeah. And so that's my complaint, actually, about 
cultures and religions is that um, there's the sociology of it is confused, is promulgated as if it's um, philosophical. Like it's important to be monastic because as you make progress up the ladder of cognitive development or, or cognitive brain control, you know, you'll you'll become ultimately the, the you know the, the head of, of the, the monastery. So you have to make this progress. And so in the monastic life where you're living undistracted, you're being taught by elders mm-hmm. and masters and developing your your cognition over time through the Buddhist process, to me, um, uh, is not necessary at all. And that's just part of control. It's like, you know, when, when the when the warlord comes down and offers silk and rubies and gold, mm-hmm. well, they want to control. And here it's the same thing. The sociology of control, the cults do it, and large religions do it as well, too, when they have especially live-in situations or hierarchical yeah. situations, even schools, where, you know, the students and the masters and stuff like that, you know, the really important stuff, there, there's no masters. We're all um, the same. Yeah. Well, aside from, like, the actual hierarchy, um, um, the alternate reality of living in this world where people have different beliefs and, like, uh, social norms are different, which is a cool part of that and probably why I was high all the time. Um I do, I do consider it like it was, it was like a light trip of LSD for two years for me. Yeah. And um, I kept back not tripping anymore looking back at my trip over a long period of time but lessons that i learned how to affect me and all that and um what was my question look at the clarity yeah you know, i mean you had a certain living in that environment um you could see the, the dynamic the social dynamics and mm-hmm. see yourself maybe emotionally as well it's a vehicle for self um this is like a mirror in a way when you engage in a group like that or a living situation like that it it Triggers things inside you. Yeah. Affiliation, um, happiness, uh, dopamine for that matter, right. like you said. Yeah, I just wondered, just like with any substance, about the come down, because I, I know a lot of people who left, and there's very mixed opinions. Some people are like, oh, that was great. I don't want to do it again. It's a rough trip. And there's a lot of people who are like, that was terrible. I wish I never did that. I'm more of the I had a good time side, but obviously I wasn't an alternate reality for a while. I think about that comparing what it to – What's that? What was the bad trip part? Um, it was kind of the stuff you're talking about, like with the manipulation, and and I, and I go back and forth on like thinking about it ethically of what I actually think. That's I don't have a clear, um, concrete opinion on it yet, or maybe I never will. Well, they're well-meaning, you know, yeah. like they're 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 enthusiasts and they're well-meaning about the value they believe deeply in the value of what they're promulgating. Yeah. So it's not like they're, you know, rolling their hands and saying, ha, 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 how can I control these people? They're, they're, they're also not brainwashed exactly, but in, in conceptually, you know, cognitively in the state of mind where they're very much in favor and supporters and believers mm-hmm. of this process. So when they give to, to the students, they're giving, you know, um, a boon. They're giving a benefit, a blessing, really. Yeah. And so they're heavily self, um, not self-congratulatory, that's the wrong word, I don't mean it that negatively, but they self, um, the self-supporters, if you will, they believe in what they're doing. Yeah. And, and, and truth, down as deep as they can go, they're not doing it to manipulate or control. Now, on a deeper level, or structurally, the way the organization is set up mm-hmm. by the leaders originally, perhaps there's a control element there. They may not even really be aware of it, except for the fact that it's good to control your students because they need to learn it's good for them. So That's definitely the rationale, but there, I mean, I know everybody hits a point when they're there where they're like, oh, I don't know if this is the right thing, but everyone else is doing it. Let me just do it. 
Like, I mean, especially when it comes to sales, like that's a thing that would happen a lot. I went through that myself. Where I'm like, oh, this is probably not right, but you know what? I'm just going to do it. I mean, that was the bad trip part for me in, in many senses. Oh, uh, yeah, please. So look, there's lots of things that can be um, awakening. You know, this idea of looking into the netherworld to ground yourself, to re-ground yourself in, in a space that's more real, more deeper, more truer in some ways, so that you can modulate or control the um, the uh, ability to destroy the earth yeah. you know, by staying in touch with the nature of it all. There's lots of different ways um, to uh, do that. Mm -hmm. All you really need to do is notice that you're in a default state. Like right now, it's the middle of the afternoon, and aside from a little cannabis, you know, yeah. basically we're in the default world that everybody works in all day long. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, yes, we have dreams. That's a different state, an altered state. But you're asleep. It's like a, a wacky world that you don't even, you're not even awake for. Yeah. Right? And then, um, and that's about it, right? This waking world, and then there's, um, there's dreaming. And I guess this orgasm, that's another sort of, but it's not that different, right? And that's about it. So we sort of feel this is our default state. This is the way it really is. And everything else is an altered state. Mm -hmm. But in reality, you have to see the default state as an altered state also. Yeah. That one of many possible states of mind. And when you have a psychedelic experience, or when you do chanting, or rhythmic dancing, or breathing, or sensory overload, or sensory deprivation, yeah. both. Both make you notice that you have a state of mind that is not necessarily necessary, that it could be something else. Uh -huh. And that experience is very freeing and enables you to recognize, too, that there's a substrate truth, a more fundamental reality that you can go visit, so to speak, in your mind, or you can, you know, recreate or get in touch with or align with or mm -hmm. have sympathetic vibration with. Um, but that, you know, um, it helps you you know, have that deeper sense of, of groundedness and rootedness and stability that enables you to live your life in a more, your, your concrete life in a more mature, you know, reasonable way. And like, I, I, there's so many different ways to do it. Um, you know, I, I mentioned even cannibalism or uh, ancestor worship mm -hmm. is, a, is, is a way of recognizing that your, your state of mind is broader over the generations, for example. And um, not only that, but travels into the netherworld, mm -hmm. the world of the dead. Um, so there's so many different ways to sort of re-envision yourself. And it's not drugs are not the only way. However, psychedelic uh, plants and, and are the most reliable and the most powerful. And that's why every culture on the planet, until Descartes, really, uh, or until Christianity, has um, used psychoactive sacraments. Yeah. Because they're, they're effective. Have you found, I'm curious about your experience with orgasmic meditation, have you found anything like that um, in terms of state altering? Oh, yeah, there's so much about that. I haven't really pursued it. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'll pull out a book for you, um, uh, which is, talks about that. In fact, let me just go and get it right now. It's a really good book. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, clearly, and that, that if, you, if you kind of ask your question with um, – uh, Kundalini, uh, with Tantra mm -hmm. in, in mind. And people who compare it all mean to Tantra as right. well. So it, a Tantra is a way of slowing it down, essentially, and to, um, having it not be so autonomic, mm -hmm. um, and tapping into the energy and the power that's created 
um, as you have sexual stimulation, as you have orgasm eventually. And so, um, you know, Tantra delays orgasm and then channels or harnesses the orgasmic energy for meditative purposes. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, as far as, so if one can be adept at um, self-control and slowing down the orgasm process, then you can sort of like experience that energy or that mental state for a longer and longer period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people try to do. It is kind of a parlor trick, though, in a sense. Yeah. You know, tapping into that energy like I was talking about before. Let me get that book. Sure. It's really quite a wonderful one. I really love it. You know, if you don't mind leaving that running for a minute or, or pausing it for a second, come, I want to show you. Okay. I'll just show you. Writes about that. Um, um, and he says that if you want to have a long-lasting erection, then you need to be completely relaxed. Mm -hmm. And the, that, and I've noticed this myself, that there's almost like a kind of a, like a grabbing thing yeah. that happens. And once that happens, it's almost like there's friction that makes you come. Yeah. But if you're completely relaxed, which really hard to do, it's like being tickled mm -hmm. and not doing yeah, like that. Yeah, because the more sensation, the more, yeah. You know, like, like that. But if you can literally be like in a meditative state, like, like totally relaxed, then you can keep your action forever. Mm -hmm. So, according to our show, and I find that basically to be true. The more relaxed I am, the more, and the more self-conscious I am about coming, the more quickly I come. Yeah. And so psychologically, the more relaxed I am, the more at peace or confident and relaxed I am, the, it's like almost like self-fulfilling prophecy. It's interesting. Um, so there's, there's something to do with orgasm and relaxation mm -hmm. and meditation. So if you want the orgasm to last, I mean, how does one uh, have a tantric um, orgasm that, you know, um, where you don't have an orgasm, basically tantric experience where you don't have orgasm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it's not from control. Tightening makes it worse. That's the right. direction that makes you come. It comes from the meditative state, yeah. which is release, not grasping. So that, that to me, are you recording this, brother? Uh, yeah. Good. Good. No, yeah. good. So um, that to me is the, 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 the connection mm -hmm. between orgasm and Relaxation, comma meditation, comma psychedelics. Yeah, like people often ask me how oming affected my sex life. If I wasn't actually my genitals were involved, and things concentrating on that. Since I wasn't being stimulated, I can just focus on feeling. I mean, you know, sympathetically feeling. Um, which when I had sex, I didn't feel like I had to pull for that. Yeah, right. Closing, yeah, you know. Right. That's right. And so the idea of multiple orgasms is kind of similar in a way. It's like, um, and it's also intention too. Yeah. I find it psychologically, like once I've had an or my first orgasm, it's like, I'm not, you know, most times I don't, I'm not motivated to have a second right. orgasm. So, you know, it's like, if I can't quote unquote get it up again, if I can't have another orgasm, um, is it really physiological? Yeah. Is it kind of like mental on some level? I'm allowing myself to not get it up because I'm being lazy or tired or whatever. So yeah. there's, there's a lot of self-interest in my own personal experience of this, mm -hmm. you know, tied up in orgasm and sexuality. Like, how much am I... Now, I'm very giving and a very giving lover, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm way, uh, you know, over the scale on, on the side toward attending to the other person mm -hmm. and not being a selfish lover. It's because I want to be a good boy. Yeah. Well, the idea also is when you're really in an empathic state, it feels good to pleasure the other person. 
And like it, is, it becomes selfish. Selfish is, uh, and altruism become the same thing. That duality gets transcended. Yeah. Exactly right. No, I yeah. agree with you entirely. That's been my experience too. So even if it's psychologically motivated at first, over time, you become, you know, more altruistic, I think, and mm-hmm. way into the whole process. Of yeah. Because that's fun. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's certainly true. But there's, but it's interesting because, um, here's again, this short-term, long-term thing mm-hmm. of transcending the short-term in favor of the long-term. So with sexuality, the same thing, because, you know, there's so much physical, sensual indulgence sort of uh, uh, hedonistic uh, pleasure yeah. um, about sex. And yet, really, when you transcend that desire to quick have an orgasm, that immediate gratification sense, and think longer term, that's where tantra comes in. Yeah. That's where attending to your partner's needs comes in. Yeah. That's even where building a relationship over time because of your mutual love comes in, which isn't about, you know, let me have an orgasm right away, which is the shortest term yeah. approach to sexuality. So short term, long term. And yeah, back to that. <laughs> disidentifying with the short term and, and identifying instead with the long term becomes, mm-hmm. it's the hallmark of maturation. Yeah. It reflects maturation and it enables maturation. Yeah, I thought about that bringing the tie in together the orgasm and that uh what you just said uh like that state of arousal obviously I don't know how but but it certainly affects your nervous system and uh, your hormones of course I mean I so this is something I'm trying to cover in the book a lot about how I was in an altered state for a while from stroking clitorises um I wish I knew what was actually going on in the brain or could somehow uh come up with a scientific understanding of that but uh yeah it's an altered state where you feel empathic and connected, just like, uh, well, I mean, you know, yeah. And that, that there's so many different ways to get it. In fact, I should add, you know, orgasm to this uh, page, this uh, PowerPoint we're looking at. The, <laughs> I don't think I have an orgasm on that page and I certainly should. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of ways to do it. And, uh, I, you know, in the earlier slide, in this slide, I talk about, um, noticing your altered state. So, you know, a lot of these things are really, in a sense, about becoming aware of your own mind. And um, I don't know, but it's funny because as you move forward towards self-awareness, you always want to have that root in your ground of your being, in mm-hmm. the deepest part of you. Um, otherwise, it becomes an intellectual effort. Yeah. How does that relate to the body? Well, you know, we, I mean, it's, it's not new to say that um, we at the West revere the, the mind, mm-hmm. uh, the brain, if you will, to the exclusion of the rest of the body, especially the genitals and things like right. that. <laughs> but, of course, it makes sense that on some level, no matter what level you want, even if you're a, a concrete, you know, deterministic, materialistic, mm-hmm. classical, scientific approach, that, the, that your whole body um, would be better at making decisions than just your brain. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, without defining how the rest of the body would be involved in the decision-making process, but, you know, you have a feeling in your gut. Obviously, you have hormones yeah. everywhere. Um, you know, there's different ways in which um, the, the body participates or is involved in a, you know, more holistic way rather than just intellectual and abstract. Mm-hmm. So I've always thought that, you know, to the extent that, and, and Zen, is, Zen is about this really, is becoming unselfconscious meaning using your whole self, mm-hmm. your whole body, your your whole organism, 
all modes of thinking used without the, the um, sort of dictatorial control of the, of the brain, of the ego. Yeah, and tying this to religion and psychedelics again, like orgasm, in the way you were talking about how um, they shunned that stuff because it would ruin the the belief of following the king and all that stuff, uh, sexuality has also been shunned for the same reason. Absolutely. It brings you to that altered state where... Absolutely. Yeah. So many different methods. That many of these methods would be outlawed, like chanting or, or certain ritual ceremonies, mm -hmm. if they brought the people to this um, sense of you know, a deeper sense of reality. Cool. I have one, one last question. It's, uh, it's from one of our listeners. Uh, we ended up talking about ideas mostly today, but um, he did have a question about uh, substances specifically. Sure. Um, he wrote, which, substance, which substances are generally safe and effective in showing one, showing other sides of who you really are? That's a good question. It's a very fundamental question. I mean, safe and effective is not just the substance, of course. But it's um, your the mind, the state of mind you bring to the experience. Mm -hmm. So a state of mind of um, of, uh, of love, of relaxation, and of uh, uh, you know open-minded anticipation of what you're going to experience, mm -hmm. of um, release and surrender to the experience. I mean, people ask me frequently, should I have an agenda for my trip? Should I think mm -hmm. through what? you know, and make a list of things I want to look at while I'm tripping. And I say, well, go ahead and do all that stuff before you trip. But when you're tripping, don't hold to it. Allow your mind to bring up those topics if it wants to. Allow the substance to trigger those thoughts if, so that it should happen. Mm -hmm. But don't have your list in front of you, no. But make your list in advance, fine. Yeah. And then leave it at home, you know. Um, so, uh, um, so, so as far as, you know, the, the the having a positive experience, there's so many different factors involved, mm -hmm. like your mindset of, of surrender and release, and the environment, of course, as well. Set and setting the, um, the the setting has to do with um, being in a, in a place where you feel safe, mm -hmm. where you can really feel safe to relax, to go deep, and to let that deepness out or up mm -hmm. um, in, in, in whatever way you really want to. So that entails some place, probably not public, probably with people who love you. You know, as opposed to being out in the public with people you just met, for example. So that's, you know, the environment you're in mm -hmm. also has a lot to do with the, you know, having a successful experience. But as far as substance is concerned, personally, you know, there's sort of two approaches. Some people, some young psychonauts, generally young, will want to, you know, be like encyclopedic in their experience mm -hmm. in their phenomenology. So they're going to try every different, you know, they're going to try 2CB, 2CE, mm -hmm. et cetera, all the different variants that Sasha Shulgin, you know, helped make by yeah. tweaking the molecules in successively right. different ways. And so it's all on mescaline, right? Based on mescaline yeah. for the most part. Yeah, the phenethylamines. Mm -hmm. But he also did the same process of, of adding, you know, uh, grafting on components from interesting, you know, psychoactive uh, molecules onto uh -huh. other molecules in the tryptamine world, which is not the... Um, uh, masculine world, but more like the world of LSD and mushrooms mm -hmm. and ayahuasca, uh, two different chemical classes. The phenethylamines is where the, the, the masculine uh, resides. That's, that's, those are um, the phosphorylated amphetamines. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're already, uh, they're built on amphetamine spines. So that's why, you know, MDMA can be a little speedy and jaw grindy sometimes. Yeah. But in any event, so um, some people want to make an encyclopedic 
life experience of trying every one of those things and noting what the differences are. They're, they're very fascinating. So the whole idea of this structure activity relationship, the way the structure of the molecule fits into the structure of the receptor site. And if it's serotonin, fine. But yeah. if it's LSD that's shaped like serotonin, then it has an interesting similar effect, a uh-huh. triggering effect or a suppressive effect. But, you know, um, that whole process of all the different ways the molecules can affect you. There's one molecule, for example, that has no, um, no hallucinations, no colors, no mm-hmm. visual distortions, no psychedelic feeling of spirituality at all. The only thing this molecule does is change your perception of hearing uh, one half an octave. Hmm. So, although spoken language sounds normal, any music sounds screechingly awful. <laughs> and that's the only, so, you know, is it a psychedelic effect? Well, a psychoactive effect, yes. So, Interesting. it's fascinating. Yeah. About how, I am not interested in taking that molecule, however. Personally, right. <laughs> not of that school. You know, some people want to try everything and they, they find it fascinating. For me, I, I personally look to what has risen up to the top, what's risen to the surface. Mm-hmm. What are the most popular substances, the ones that, you know, are the classics, if you will? So there's LSD, there's mushrooms, there's um, MDMA. Those are the biggies, I guess, these days. And there's DMT, there's a few others. Um, but I think those things are tried and true. They rose to the top because they're, they're, you know, the FDA has a criteria of safety and efficacy, safe mm-hmm. and effective, uh, that to be approved. And so the tribal peoples had the same exact criteria. They wanted it to work and they didn't want it to have too many side effects. And they learned over the centuries, over the millennia, like, you know, you don't give a lysergide, an LSD-like substance, to a pregnant woman because it tends to be a uterine dilator mm-hmm. and can, you can have an abortion, you know, spontaneous abortion. So they learn these things, and that's the wisdom through the tribal pharmacopoeia. And over the centuries, certain things, you know, continued and were adopted, and certain things fell by the wayside. Another example is in, in the um, 1800s, the Plains Indians um, used a, a substance. I said every society um, until, you know, Western civilization has used these um, psychoactive plants, visionary mm-hmm. plants, in their in their in their cosmology and spiritual practices. So the Plains Indians had access to something called mescaline. Now mescaline sounds like mescaline, but it's it was actually named in, in, by mistake. And it, really, but it's not. It doesn't have any mescaline in it. It has other substances that are psychoactive, but are have a very heavy body load. And you can even die from it. You can go and have a seizure. But you do touch the nether world. You do, mm-hmm. you know, notice your your state of consciousness, and you do get to peek into the, you know, uh, fundamental world. All right, fine. Yeah. So they use this. As soon as now peyote, uh, the cactus, the mescaline, was way down south in northern Mexico and southern Texas, mm-hmm. and that was it had not spread. But when the Native American church was founded and they started promulgating and spreading the use of, of peyote. For spiritual rituals, and it spread through the Midwest and through the Plains Indians. And as soon as the Plains Indians, you know, as soon as they they encountered mescaline, you know, uh, peyote, they immediately dropped mescaline mm-hmm. and adopted the peyote instead because it was more safe and efficacious. So, you know, um, what you uh, so personally, you know, um, I've been focused on, you know, I, I kind of take a lesson from the, the society, from culture. And, and for me, what most people are using, what most people have used, what over the decades and the centuries has, you know, stood the test of time, those are the things that are safer 
and more efficacious. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, this is a call for research because these substances are being reintroduced into society, but this caller is obviously asking about taking the drug, drug illegally. And, you know, lots of people do that, of course, and lots of people do it safely, but it's mm -hmm. not a safe practice, really. And it's not the, 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 the user's uh, problem, it's the government's problem. The prohibition has created a, a, a sense of a state of lack of safety. Yeah. Because there's no knowledge and there's no quality control. There's no purity. There's no nothing, of course. The same thing happened in the 20s when they um, prohibited alcohol, and 20s and 30s, and the same thing's happening um, now, and we're correcting that. And so we need to fund research. The research in psychedelics has been approved since the early 90s, 1990s, mm -hmm. but it hasn't been funded for the most part by the government. Um, and so we need to, you know, take a more objective um, fact-finding approach to these most powerful of substances. And, you know, we, when, when LSD was, was essentially banned for you know, 20 years from the early 1970s, um, effectively speaking, through the early 1990s, um, there was still research that went on in the laboratory, just not with human subjects. Mm -hmm. And that 20-year period showed an enormous progress in understanding the serotonin molecule. And because LSD was used in the laboratory in petri dishes to sort of understand the mm -hmm. way serotonin worked. So um, there's lots of research about the brain, um, about structure activity relationships, and the, you know every possible. Are, are there molecules that haven't even been created yet that might have an effect on the brain of a certain sort? Um, it's the most important question in the world, really. I mean, why wouldn't we be studying psychedelics mm -hmm. um, and, and these chemicals? Do you think there'll be a psilocybin pill? Well, I mean, uh, you mean what you mean, it, there is a psilocybin pill. It's called psilocybin, you know, and, and it's available. And so you think it would be factorized? It used to be manufactured by um, Sandoz, the same people uh, who uh, manufactured Delicid, uh -huh. which was their brand name for LSD. So there were pills and there are. Gotcha. Okay. What you really mean, I'm sorry to be, you know, cute, but I think what you really mean is, you know, will it be available, you know, uh, at the corner drugstore next to the aspirin? Mm -hmm. I th is sort of what you mean. Yeah, well, I was also curious if they would just to make it a more like producible thing than selling a plant. Like, uh, they'd say, oh, it was quality control, but somehow they would make it look like a drug, I feel like. Um, which actually probably isn't true because they didn't do that with marijuana at all, but that's what something I would have thought they would do with something like a mushroom. Oh, well, you know, they, yeah, I think that they do. I mean, if you look at the, the research studies at the medical schools, mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins and NYU, UCLA, they're all using psilocybin, the pure chemical. And uh, it's not exactly a pill form, I don't think. I think it's a liquid that they add to water, if I'm not mistaken, uh -huh. and then they drink that solution. But um, it certainly is the pure chemical. And purity of the drug is coming. Look, these substances, look, um, in, in the research world, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in, the, in the drug world, in the, in the government world, all of these drugs are scheduled, uh, schedule one, no medical value. Mm -hmm. So there have been research taking place since the early 1990s again um, to demonstrate that there is some medical value. So this, the, the way the research process works is there's phase one studies, and phase two, phase three. Phase one studies are like, you know, a half a dozen people or something, mm -hmm. about five or ten people. Phase two studies are like in the, in the dozens, perhaps. And phase three studies are in the hundreds of subjects. It's the phase three studies, and maybe even higher than hundreds, that are required by the government to demonstrate uh, medical value. So the data have been very, very strong at the uh, phase one and phase two research mm -hmm. uh, levels, um, with dozens of, of 
of uh, subjects. Now they're um, g- uh, collecting money, really, donations to fund, because the government doesn't fund it, these um, uh, phase three studies, mm-hmm. which when, if the results are as positive as they have been, um, will require rescheduling of the substances, taking them out of schedule one, the category for no medical value. And the two drugs that have been, you know, in a kind of almost like a glorious horse race to mm-hmm. rescheduling are psilocybin, based on the end of uh, life anxiety studies at NYU and UCLA and, and Johns Hopkins, and then uh, MDMA, the active ingredient in um, Molly or ecstasy um, uh, with po- post-traumatic stress disorder. So in that research, there's like these are people who, um, whose uncle raped them when they were two, and they haven't been out of the house for 25 years. And after um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, it's not the pill itself. The pill, you know, if you just take MDMA, it won't really help you with your trauma, your PTSD. But in the context of ongoing therapy, where the MDMA will open you up to further therapeutic progress, there's really cures where these people who have been going to the house for 25 years are now going shopping. Yeah, I've heard amazing things about people with MDMA therapy. MDMA-assisted yeah. psychotherapy. Uh, okay. They're really picky about it, and, and mm-hmm. really so, because they want to point out that it really isn't the action of the drug itself. Right, right, you of course. MDMA, if, you have, if you have a big trauma and you, you, know, you haven't been asked for 25 years, and you take MDMA, you can make it much worse Yeah. by experiencing the, re-experiencing the trauma, re-traumatizing yourself, going partially down and then blocking up and, not, and blocking it worse than it had been before because now you've opened it up a little bit. And there's lots of ways in which it can be worse. Yeah, so the, the, idea is, the idea is that um, like the mind becomes more malleable and a good therapist will form it into something beneficial and otherwise it could just leak into a puddle or something. Well, I wouldn't put it quite that way, no. I mean, yes, you have the basic process, you know, process but I wouldn't say malleable. And I wouldn't say that the therapist can then, you know, do something because that's not what therapy's about, actually. Mm-hmm. So it, it malleable means that you can you can manipulate them in a way, but no, it's it's more like um, uh, released from fear, um, and, and basically. So the experience, the trauma is like is like a like a a, a a knot in your muscle, in your psychological mm-hmm. muscle, deep down, and it's like a cyst. You know, it's got a coating around it that's hard mm-hmm. and impervious, you know, to access. And it's buried down deep. And that's what it's like, you know. And so it's, um, and when you go near it, it tightens up. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm reminded of that creature in the movie Alien. Mm-hmm. Who, who was on his face. Yeah. And had his tail around his neck. Uh-huh. And when they tried to remove it, the tail around his neck tightened up. Yeah. It's like that, you know. So... Um, so if you can, um, so if you can take the MDMA, which will um, loosen the fear mm-hmm. and, um, somehow it just dissolves the fear. So you can go down and re-experience the trauma without, um, uh, freaking out without the deep emotional reaction of, of closing off. You can experience it from your adult perspective. Not mm-hmm. when you were two and you were terrified and it was, you almost could have died. But now when you're, you know, 27, and you can look at it now with compassion or with release or with maturity because you're not too, you're not vulnerable anymore. You're now an adult, so you're strong. And if you can re-experience it from the position of strength rather than complete vulnerability, then it changes, it shifts the position of that cyst so deep and maybe brings it to the surface and opens it up. Um, So because all because of the releasing 
you know, the, the, the fear-releasing uh, action of the MDMA enables you in the psychotherapy process, in the psychotherapy hour, to um, go down with your therapist mm-hmm. and re-examine and re-experience. Um, and that's curative. So um, these substances, both uh, MDMA, as we've just discussed, and then psilocybin, which is used for end-of-life anxiety and cancer patients mostly, um, where not on the deathbed, but in the months preceding one step, so you can live your life for the, your last months rather than living your death in fear. Mm-hmm. And so those two applications are both miraculous, really doing wonderful, wonderful results. And so, you know, based on how much money we have to get subjects, you know, into this research studies, um, these uh, within five to ten years, about eight years or so, these substances should be rescheduled. Mm-hmm. And then that means they'll be available for use, you know, in psychotherapy and, you know, different things like that. Will there be a pill? Um, once that, once that, you know, the substances were scheduled and then they're, you know, available for broader applications like psychotherapy, um, MDMA for couples work, for example, which was there for the original application of, of the research mm-hmm. for the MDMA, um, the things like that. <clears throat> um, uh, then the question becomes, how dangerous are these substances mm-hmm. for use by, by individuals? You know, the pill. Is the pill available? Not just is the pill available, will the pharmaceutical companies make it? Right. But is the pill available, meaning available to uh, uh, citizens? And that's an interesting question of policy because we, there's so many things in society that we do that are dangerous, mm-hmm. like driving a car or CPR or senior life-saving or skydiving. We're scuba diving. There's a million of them. There's so many things that we do. And every one of those things I mentioned requires some kind of training or teaching or class or some process like that and some kind of certification. You get a driver's license. You get, uh, you know, cleared to fly solo. Now, driver's license and fly solo are two interesting examples because once you get your license, you can drive on your own. But, you know, if you're looking, if you're getting a fly, your flying license, you have to have a certain number of hours right. with a licensed pilot in the, in the plane with you. And then you can fly on your own. Same thing with clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. To be licensed as a clinical psychologist, you have to have worked under a licensed clinical psychologist for two years. And then you are certified in addition to passing the, uh, the um, exams. So um, it's interesting that uh, medicine has like a, I'm thinking in uh, Star Wars terms, like a Jedi Padawan. Yeah, it's, it's kind of mentorship yeah. kind of process. Um, uh, so anyway, so, you know, there's different re- regulatory schemes and uh, training and uh, control, ways of controlling risk mm-hmm. uh, to the citizens that we do as a society, and there's different ways we do it. So psychedelics are going to be kind of like that. They'll do a risk assessment, basically, and decide how much training or, if any, you know, is required, and there'll probably be some, and uh, how much supervision will be required, like, you know, the, the um, uh, you know, licensed pilot or the, the licensed uh, clinical psychologist. <laughs> and we'll make that decision as a society. So I think that, um, I mean, as demonstrated by the millions and millions of people who've done psychedelics under dangerous circumstances, basically, where mm-hmm. they're illegal, where dose and, and, and purity is uncontrolled, where there's no real wisdom, tribal wisdom, elders, there's no context of knowledge. Yeah. They don't know that you should have a safe sentence setting. Over the decades, actually, since the 60s, you know, it's funny, psychedelic use has remained stable, but emergency room admissions for psychedelic use have plummeted. Hmm. And that reflects the community's 
greater knowledge and ability yeah. to uh, handle it. The internet must have changed that because I'm sure everyone gets their info on Arrowhead or whatever. It's, it's widely, there's more, more yeah. information available now. But even so, it's still, you know, a situation where at the very least, the vibe is negative because you're, you're breaking the law. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's got to be kind of, you know, a negative tint to one psycho experience instead of it being in the tribal setting where it's blessed and welcomed yeah. and revered. So a very mm-hmm. different attitude towards substance culturally. Yeah, yeah. thinking about it culturally, like everyone does have to be introduced to a substance by someone who already does it. Like there is at least that connection. Like, I don't know anyone who just randomly sought out, you know, psychedelics. I guess I'm sure it happens too. So, yeah, I mean, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there, there may be a difference in the uh, way in which it's sort of mentored in a way. So, mm-hmm. like, certain people would say, all right, it's your first LSD trip. You know, let's just stay home and, you know, you can be quiet here and I'll be right there. And, you know, we can talk if you like or whatever. It's something gentle and yeah. kind of uh, free, uh, free in the sense of allowing the person to have whatever experience might come their way. Um, another person might say, oh, right, you want to take acid? Come on. Here, take a hit of acid. We're going to this party tonight. Uh, you know, and we'll be thoughtless mm-hmm. about it and give them other substances too, for example, uh, drinking alcohol for that matter, yeah. um, going to a party where they don't know anybody. You know, there's all sorts of ways that, you know, people can have difficult experiences. But I say difficult experiences rather than bad experiences because, you know, unless you're um, predisposed to serious mental disorder, in which case you shouldn't be taking psychedelics. If you have a family history of schizophrenia, if your mother was schizophrenic, for example, don't take psychedelics. You know, uh, and the research studies screen out people with family history of serious mental illness. But aside from that subset, for most people, um, if they have a, a difficult experience with psychedelics where they're, you know, really, really, really happy or really even dissociated, um, they will come back to Earth. And it's like a, like the pendulum swing, you know, and over the period of hours or days even, you know, they will uh, come back down to normal. The, the, the typical person, mm-hmm. again, if you screen out serious mental illness. Um, so that means that it's not a bad experience, but a difficult one if you come back, if you come back to, to, to ground zero. So as a, the example I give is thinking about Burning Man. I, I worked at Burning Man in the sanctuary uh, area for people who had too much psychedelics mm. or too much Burning Man for that matter. And, um, you know, in that environment, it's different from if, if you're found on the playa, the, the, you know, Burning Man desert acting out, bumping into people, knocking stuff over, and being obnoxious and potentially dangerous. If the, um, um, uh, you know, if the authorities find you, they'll call the medical people to come in and they'll give you a shot or something that will put you out. Hmm. And then you will wake up 24 hours later in a hospital room with a whopping um, ambulance bill, by the way. And you will remember what you were grappling with. It was so difficult, uh, you know, on the client 24 mm-hmm. hours prior. But if the sanctuary people see you and bring you into the sanctuary area, then you can act out and, you know, in five minutes or five hours, you can come back to earth and say, wow, man, that was dealing with my mother and I couldn't handle it and I was running around. And you can continue then the process mm-hmm. instead of having it truncated and buried. That's so interesting that there's Burning Man police. Well, they're not actually police, they're <laughs> called rangers. And um, I would, you have to be a ranger to, to work at Sanctuary. So I, I was trained as a ranger. They're uh, more like hall monitors. And if you, gotcha. You know, it's not police. But, um, and it's self-appointed too, you know, it's like self-created. The Burning Man is like that, it's, it's an anarchy. So yeah. the, the medical community, for example, that's all self-created. Everything's 
you know, it's radical self-sufficiency, mm-hmm. and these things just pop up like mushrooms, and, you know, if they're useful, they last, and the, the rangers are useful. Um, but the relationship between the rangers and the sanctuary and the, versus the rangers and the medical tent has sort of been a little problematic because the ranger people tend to be like, um, oh, I don't know, like uh, uh, military veterans who carry walkie-talkies. And, yeah. You know, they, they walk around in khakis like, like um, Australian, um, uh, you know, policemen mm-hmm. with their hats turned on. <laughs> I haven't seen that. Sorry, it's really funny. Uh. Uh, cool. They take themselves quite seriously. And the people who work in sanctuary, because Burning Man requires people to be rangers in order to work in sanctuary, the therapists and the, you know, other people who come in, the, the sitters who come in to help people mm-hmm. in sanctuary and have to go through the ranger training process, <laughs> like join the Marines for two weeks. It's really weird. Uh, that's funny. Cool. Although there are, there are rangers who are quite sensitive, wonderful people who work in sanctuary each year. And do a great job. It's a really interesting experience. Sanctuary is beautiful. Cool. Yeah, we cover a lot of subjects. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Um, I'm, I was actually just thinking I'm look very much looking forward to listening to this again later. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. Well, you know, let me know, um, you know, how I can help you further or if you want to follow up on anything else. Yeah, totally. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to be a part of the virtual audience for future episodes, make sure to follow me at crowdcast.io slash Rwando. See you next time.